Normally when I'm preaching, I work on my sermon throughout the week and then I print it out at home on Saturday night. And so I got home yesterday, sat down, read it over again, said, yeah, I think that's good to go and went to print it and the printer went. I tried to print it again and the printer went. And so I turned the printer off, turned it back on, let it reset, tried to print. So that was last night. I'm thinking, okay, it's all right. I'll save it. I'll bring it to the church. I can print it from here. No problem. I just need to get here a little early. Three o'clock in the morning, I woke up with a change in my head, thinking, hmm, maybe I could say that a little better. And it was so strong in my mind that I actually took my phone and typed the note into my phone so I wouldn't forget it. And so I figured I got to get here a little bit earlier this morning. I got here. On the way here, I'm composing this paragraph to change in my sermon. It happens. I hope I didn't mess it up. You may have seen the post on social media from a young black man named David Gray. In it, he describes his concern about taking his very young son to daycare. He names 21 people and what they were doing, simple, commonplace actions, before they were killed by someone in authority. It's hard to read, but it is a witness to what we are living through almost daily now. And it got me thinking about the people I know friends of mine who work or have worked in law enforcement. Chuck, Toby, Sarah, Brandon, Nate, Christian, Michael. And the instantaneous, impossible decisions they might be called on to make. As a result of reading Mr. Gray's post, followed hard along by the shooting of 13-year-old Adam Toledo, and thinking about my friends, my mind has kept turning back to a question that I had to answer on the general ordination exams in 2019. It was the Christian ethics and moral theology question. So I'd like to share it with you today. Here's the question. A parishioner wants to discuss the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s statement that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. The parishioner points specifically to the ways that issues of race and ethnicity have come to the foreground of public debate with the rise of white supremacist groups, police shootings, and the Black Lives Matter movement. The parishioner points to the recent critique of King's theology by ta Coates, who notes that his own, quote, understanding of the universe was physical and its moral arc bent toward chaos, then concluded in a box. That's from Between the World and Me. 
articulate a response that engages critically and theologically with the statements made by both King and Coates, identify the respective socio-historical contexts and engage the different worldviews of the authors. Here's the kicker. How would you incorporate these two perspectives in a coherent and contemporary Christian moral response to racism? So here's most of what I wrote. Dr. King and Mr. Coates both speak their own truths, but I think they do so while looking through different lenses. Dr. King wrote his book in 1967 to offer a sense of hope to African Americans that the advances made in the 1960s were real and tangible, but not complete. As always, Dr. King advocated for nonviolent efforts to continue the struggle. He was guided by his strong Christian upbringing and faith. He believed in the dignity of every human being, regardless of color or creed. and He sought to love others as he was loved by God. But he did not believe these things innocently. He was willing to call out leaders, both in society and in the church, for complacency and complicity. Like Harper Lee's Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird, he was one of those men, quote, who was born to do our unpleasant jobs for us. We're so rarely called on to be Christians, but when we are, we've got men like him to go for us. When Dr. King made the statement about the moral arc of the universe, I think he was looking with his most hopeful eyes. The struggle had been going on for so long, and the changes like the Voting Rights Act of 1964 seemed to be fostering a new promise for equality. But the quote is slightly misstated, which in this case makes a big difference. The full quote is by an abolitionist minister, Theodore Parker, from 1853. He said, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe. The ark is a long one. My eye reaches but a little ways. I cannot calculate the curve and complete the figure by experience of sight. I can only divine it by conscience. And from what I see, I am sure it bends toward justice. Reverend Parker does not say that justice is inevitable, but he senses it by what he believes in his heart about mankind. Dr. King's use of this part of the quote indicates that he believes that justice is, in fact, inevitable. The implication is that someday, whether we do anything or not, justice will come for everyone. An unintended effect of that argument is that if the ark bends inevitably, then there is no need to work toward justice. Additionally, in a 2016 interview, then Attorney General Eric Holder said, the ark bends toward justice, but only because people pull it toward justice. It doesn't happen on its own. Mr. Coates wrote his book to his 15-year-old son. If Dr. King used his most hopeful eyes, then Mr. Coates seems to use his most realistic eyes.
writing 50 years on from Dr. King's death, he emphasizes the permanence of racial injustice, the foolishness of believing one person can make change, and the dangers of believing in the American dream. Mr. Coates, born in 1975 in Baltimore, has seen racial violence in his own hometown and across the country. From Rodney King to the Flatbush, New York riots, to Ferguson, Missouri, Oakland, California, St. Louis, Missouri, right down to Adam Toledo this weekend. The list is long, and as he states, concluded in a box, most often containing the dead body of an African-American male. He questions how a country that is founded on liberty and justice for all can be responsible for and perpetrate the racism, poverty, violence, and discrimination that is still the reality for so many people of color. Mr. Coates, an atheist, doesn't rail at God asking, where were you? He lays his criticism squarely at the feet of those who have helped perpetuate the cycle in which he grew up and in which he knows his son must try to survive. This is a sad truth for our country. As far as we have come in recent years, in reality, very little has changed, as is evidenced by the spike in racial tension and violence across the country, often endorsed by those in leadership. So where does all this leave us as Christians when we consider racism? Part of the problem for many of us who are white is that we can never, never, understand fully what African-American people must deal with in their daily lives. We forget that biblically the only ontological obligations or designations for people are male and female, not black, white, or brown. But from the moment a white European man set eyes on a dark-skinned African, our whole psychology changed. Think of the mere connotations of the words white and black. White equals good, pure, godlike. Black equals evil, dirty, devilish. But in our day, race has become something ontological, part of what it means to be a particular person. Race has been given the same kind of power that male or female has. In a perfect world, we would all be identified not as male or female, black or white or brown, but just as a person made in God's image. What we must do is look at the world and especially others with one of Dr. King's hopeful eyes and one of Mr. Coates' realistic eyes. Racial profiling, racial violence, discrimination, systemic poverty are all real problems. We must recognize the history of race and race relations, but we must also remember that we have an inability to fully imagine life as the other. Even those who say, I don't see color, or I am colorblind, border on devaluing the beauty and wonder of diversity. Difference, whether it is color or gender or orientation or status, is a blessing. The church can be an intentional community of difference, not because of some abstract commitment to diversity as such, 
but because the differences embedded in creation are meant to be conduits of blessing, receiving from another precisely what we are not and what we have not. But the church and the Christians in it must do more. We are called by Christ to love one another as he loves us, to seek and to serve him in everyone we meet, to strive for justice and peace among all people, and respect the dignity of every human being. We must be the ones who keep our finger on the end of that long moral arc to keep it bending always and inexorably toward justice. That's what I wrote and believed in 2019. Honestly, I could have written it last week because in all this time, it seems nothing has changed much. In fact, things might be worse now in some ways, especially in light of what Mr. Gray posted. That's where we stand right now, fearful, doubtful, unsure of what to do, wondering, is it even worth it? But in Luke's gospel today, the resurrected Jesus reminds the fearful disciples that they must be witnesses to his life, his death, and resurrection. Witnesses to his story. Jesus himself was a witness to great injustice. Many of the Pharisees and Sadducees who plotted against him, Judas, one of his own who betrayed him, Pilate, who had the last chance to let him go. Jesus' words at the end of his life were, Father, forgive them, they do not know what they are doing. But Jesus was also a great witness to great faith. His mother Mary, the Samaritan woman, the Roman centurion. Just last week, Father Greg asked us to be a sermon in action. In other words, a living witness to Jesus Christ's story, the story of God's radical love for the world and everyone in it. So let me remind you of something. Someone witnessed for all of us. Someone lifted us up and let us stand on their shoulders. For centuries, that has been the process. Be a witness. Tell the story. Make someone else remember it well enough to keep it going. And now it's our turn. We stand here as witnesses so that kids like Levi and Keto and Julian and Judah and William and Austin and so many others will grow up knowing the love of Christ for all people. In his letter this week, Bishop Benfield exhorted us to set a different example than the current one being exhibited by many in positions of power and leadership. He said, so that when people look at Christianity in Arkansas, they will see Christians who live into the message that Christ is risen and now lives in everyone whom we encounter. We do that now because someone did it for us. Otherwise, we wouldn't even be here right now. We wouldn't be watching virtually. As Jesus said, we are witnesses of these things. Let us not be afraid to speak our truth. 
Let us not be afraid to bear witness to societal wrongs. Let us not stop pulling on that long, long arc toward justice. Let us not forget those who witness what we do now and who will stand on our shoulders someday.